I'm really, really glad to have you all today. feels good to be with God's people today for some reason. If you're a guest today, I don't typically say that because typically it doesn't feel good to be with No, I'm teasing. <laughs> but it feels good to be with God's people today. So thanks for coming. And, and if you're visiting, you know, thanks for hanging out with us today. Today, we're going to end the series that we've been in for seven weeks now. Now, I lied. I said we were ending last week, but we had one more important Jesus event that we needed to talk about. So we're going to end that series today. And this is a series of messages that we've called Fantastic. And what we've said essentially is, if you've missed everything else for the last six weeks, don't miss this. Jesus is fantastic. So the purpose of this series is that we would be amazed at Jesus. And we should be amazed at Jesus for at least two reasons. Reason number one, he's amazing. Jesus is doing amazing things, healing sick people and walking on water and rising from the dead, and there's no trick to it. He's amazing. Secondly, we should be amazed at Jesus because our hearts were designed for worship. We were built for being amazed. And we operate at our highest and our best capacity. We operate at our highest and our best capacity when we direct our amazement at the right things. This is why Jesus at one point warned us that we can't worship God and money. And it's as if I think Jesus anticipated exactly what modern American suburbanites would be facing. So when we're not amazed, we know that there is a problem. We have a spiritual temperature when we're not amazed, or maybe a cough. Perhaps we're too jaded, or perhaps we simply don't believe. Or perhaps we're too busy to consider, because it takes time to be amazed. Or maybe something else. This series has been designed, honestly, to reintroduce our hearts to wonder. So we're going to end this series today with what theologians call the ascension of Jesus. This is a critically important event in the life and ministry of Jesus. Pastor Tim Keller is a pastor of a large church in New York City, and he called the ascension the detonator for everything else Jesus Christ did. He continued, Keller said this, the ascension takes everything Jesus did and releases it universally with all its healing power. So today we want to talk about the nature of the ascension, you know, what happened, and then the meaning, what's the significance of it, And uh, we're going to start by reading from Acts chapter 1, because this is where the ascension is talked about. Some of you will know this, but one of the biographers of Jesus was a guy named Luke, and Luke also wrote Acts. So this, you know, not only we get to talk about the ascension, but we get to kind of anticipate what we're going to do this summer. Let me launch this with a word of prayer before we get started. Father, thanks so much for the opportunity to get together. And I honestly, Lord, I do pray that today you would create wonder and amazement. That you'll take what we think about and what I say, and you'll multiply it. You'll open up our chests and massage this in and create amazement at the fantasticality of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus, thank you for who you were, who you are what you represented, and show us that this morning in a new way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Okay, I'm going to read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, and let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word, if you would. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. In my former book, Theophilus, so this is Luke, and he's written to us. This is a Greek name, evidently a gentleman named Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You know, unfortunately in Protestant settings, the ascension is not often talked about. But if you grew up in a Catholic setting, you heard about the ascension almost every year. 40 days after Easter, you celebrated Ascension Sunday. And this is why. For 40 days, Jesus was around after the resurrection, talking (laughs) and, and walking and eating even. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem. We're going to deal with some of this this summer. Today we're going to deal mostly with the end of this, but we'll allude to it. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Okay, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Still not completely getting what Jesus did and who he was. They're convinced that what this is about is, you know, military victory and the reestablishment of the kingdom. And they're going to take Saul's empire and just expand from there. He said to them, Okay, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's not exactly a no but kind of. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You get the sense that they finally get it because after this, there's never this debate about the kingdom or the literal kingdom, but now they understand that they're going to testify about him. They're to spend the rest of their lives telling people what happened and what they saw. After he said this, this is another one of those, you've got to be kidding me incidences, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? (laughs) This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. You may be seated. So what happened? Well, first of all, what's going on physically here? The ascension is mentioned both by Peter and Paul, and in both of those cases, they don't give a physical description. 1 Timothy chapter 3, this comes at a point in 1 Timothy. He's in the middle of this argument, and he he offers up what is probably a creed. And in it, he alludes to the ascension, but there's no physical description around it. Let's read this creed together, because I I imagine that this is how they would have done it. So I'll read that opening line, and, and then let's read the italicized section together. 
beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And then this, let's go. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, So, a reference to the ascension, but there's no physical description of what happened that day. Peter does the same thing. He's discussing, among other things, baptism. And he says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers, in submission to him. So, an allusion to the ascension. Those aren't the only places where it happens, and there's no physical description of the weird, bizarre thing that must have happened that day. Now, we have to admit, we don't know what this looked like. That's why when you read commentaries or articles about this, they tend to get squirrely about it. Somewhere between the office and here this morning, I lost a little article that I wanted to read you guys just a couple of chapters from by a New Testament scholar named I. Howard Marshall. And this is a guy, I mean, he believes the whole kit and caboodle. But I. Howard Marshall takes this, so he's not dodging the weirdnesses in Jesus' life, but he takes this event and says, you know, obviously Jesus, it doesn't happen the way it's often portrayed in pictures with Jesus rising and waving as he goes, you know, just lifting off the ground. And Marshall offers this complicated explanation of how, you know, perhaps there was a, a mist around him and the disciples are looking up because they're wondering where he went. He gets a little dodgy, a little squirrely, as I said, with it when he's trying to justify himself how it is that he believes this passage, you know, literally, which he does, but he thinks Luke's description might be a tad off. Perhaps Luke is offering the best description he can of a scene which, for all, Luke didn't see it firsthand in which it had to transcend the understanding of the eyewitnesses. But I tend to think that the scene was closer to literally what Luke described than some take it. I don't know what taken up before their eyes means. I don't know that it means that he literally lifted off the ground and levitated. That seemed to be the disciples' interpretation of what was happening, but we don't know that that necessarily happened. I'm not saying that Jesus couldn't. I mean, after all, this is the same guy that walked on water. But I, I do believe that Jesus got lost in a mist in something that looked to them like a cloud right before their eyes, literally. I don't know the reason that they might have interpreted or Luke seems to have alluded to the fact that he lifts up. He doesn't say that, but he certainly alludes to that. But I believe he's surrounded by some kind of cloud. And the thing that interests me is not the lifting up, the levitating off the ground. The thing that interests me is the cloud. Jesus gets taken up in a cloud. And it's interesting that this is a very familiar image. If you're familiar with Bible stories. In the Old Testament, for a period of time when Israel leaves Egypt and they're wandering around in the desert, they get led for a while. They believe by God, literally led by a cloud that was ahead of them pointing the way for them to go. There's an incident described for us by Moses in Exodus chapter 40. They built a tent, an elaborate tent structure that acted for them like their worship facility. And Moses says this about the tent. It's chapter 40. 
verses 34 and 35, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we also see the same exact phenomenon described later in Israel's history. They've now built a temple to God. And at one point when Solomon finished praying, something like fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And they describe it like this. The priests could not enter the temple because the glory of the Lord filled it and it was covered with a cloud. And you see it also in the incident John preached a few weeks ago. Jesus goes up on a mountain and we call it the transfiguration when something wild happens to Jesus. And Moses and Elijah appear and they're surrounded, enveloped, literally, by a cloud. You should know there are literal contemporary reports of cloud-like phenomena that happen even today and have throughout church history. I want you to listen to a, a paragraph from an article I read recently. I tried to look this up, and somebody gave this summary. Those who have witnessed this phenomenon, I'm quoting from this article, those who have witnessed this phenomenon describe it as a mist or a, quote, glittering swarm of gold-like particles that settle on the skin and hair, and then they vanish upward. Some describe hands and faces covered in oil or a glittery residue that returns even after it's wiped off. There are also reports of feathers or jewels falling from these clouds. I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> Some pastors claim that the cloud has so enveloped them before preaching that they could hardly see their congregation. I really believe the cloud here in this instant, I believe it was the presence of God. Perhaps God's Spirit, perhaps the Holy Spirit. In dealing with the physical scene itself, we can't help but notice the reaction of the apostles. The apostles see what's happening and they stand there and they're staring up. Maybe they're staring because they see the ascension of Jesus. They're gawking, really. They're dumbfounded. Maybe because they see the ascension as the absence of Jesus. They believe or they realize that Jesus has gone away now. They don't yet get that what has really happened is he's gone global, but we'll talk about that in a second. And then these two men in white appear, and no doubtedly angels, although Luke doesn't actually describe them as angels. And the interesting thing is that the angels rebuke the disciples. Why are you standing here staring into the sky? So why? What does this mean? Again, we'll deal with that in a moment. But let's not be misled. So let's don't miss this about the ascension. Ascend is, you know, we think of it again as a spatial term, to go up. But this is not a spatial happening. Ascend here is not spatial language. This is not a spatial event. It, it means more than that. To ascend to a throne, for instance, and that's exactly what these guys have in mind and what they're imagining, to ascend to a throne is to assume the rulership. I'm sorry for those of you who know him that Jan Zacharias is not here today. Jan is the man who's heading up our building effort on our new facility, and Jan grew up in the Netherlands. 
And I found out this week that on January 28th of 2013, Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands abdicated her throne. Holland has always had a monarch. Queen Beatrix abdicated her throne and left her role as Queen of Holland in favor of her eldest son, Willem Alexander, who became the first king of the Netherlands. They've had queens for 123 years. So Willem Alexander ascended to the throne of Holland. When he ascended his throne, the change was not a spatial change. I don't know if there's literally a throne of the Netherlands. Some of you may know. I think that there is literally a throne of England. I mean, I think there's a chair somewhere. I'm sure you can't go sit in it. You know, you would never be able to get into the room, but I think there is. Most of these monarchs, you know, historically they had a really elaborate, literally, throne. And if you could get past all of the guards, and if you could talk your way in and not create some international incident, you could walk up the steps and ascend to the throne of the Netherlands or of England. But that's not what they're talking about that happened with Willem Alexander. What happened with Willem Alexander is that he changed his relationship to everyone in the Netherlands. So it doesn't mean that he spatially moved and sat on a chair. It means that his relationship to everybody in his country changed. Some of you will know the name Yuri Gagorin. Uh, Yuri Gagorin was the first cosmonaut, and he was literally the first human being in outer space. And Yuri Gagorin, when he literally became the first human being to go into outer space, uh, he gave a very famous press conference afterwards in which he said, I was in outer space, and there was no heaven, and there was no God. Yuri was misled. It's not about there being no heaven in outer space. He was misled about the nature of reality. It's not spatial. It's dimensional. It's worth noting here that Luke says Jesus was taken into heaven. Now, I don't want to make too big a deal about that. We don't know how much Luke knew, but that's intriguing because clearly The authors of the New Testament and the people who lived in Jesus' day, they had a pre-Copernican view of the world, and they would often talk about the heavens. And they imagined the heavens as this increasingly distant from earth and more and more spiritual. And ultimately, you know, there was a place out there in which spirits dwelt physically. This is the way they often conceived of the world. And when they talked about it, they would talk about it as the realm of the heavens. It's worth noting here that Luke says Jesus went into heaven, and not plural. This would have been kind of unfamiliar phraseology. It's closer to the kind of phraseology that Jesus used when he said the kingdom of heaven. This isn't spatial. This isn't about levitating. This is about Jesus changing his relationship to everybody on planet Earth. That's what happened in the the ascension. He's now in a different kind of relationship with the universe. All right, so what is this different relationship? What's the meaning? What does the ascension signify? What does it mean? And we'll be quick here. There are three things. We could talk all day, but we won't. By the way, little parentheses. Let me offer a little aside that I'll try to get back to at the very end in five minutes. 
as I was actually thinking about and preparing this message, I want to be honest, when I said last week, uh, Resurrection Sunday, you know, you, you won't remember this if you were here, but I said at the beginning, hey, we've been doing this series of messages, and so I'm fantastic, and we're talking about how fantastic Jesus is. Today we're going to end this series. And I said that because I had already been working on the Ascension. And it seemed kind of boring to me, honestly. I mean, there's some of these other incidences that we're talking about with Jesus where I read them and I go, holy smokes. And they seem to kind of apply to my life. But I read about the Ascension and I thought, eh, I was kind of bored. So I edited it out of our fantastic series. And this week I got convicted about that. I'll tell you why in a minute. So, hang on. Because I know that what we're talking about this morning, and especially this next section, threatens to be boring. But, but don't let yourself go there. Hold on. So, what does it mean that Jesus is in a different relationship? What does the ascension signify? What does it mean? Well, when Jesus was here on earth, occupying a body, he was in one place at one time. But after the ascension... He has moved outside of time and space, and now he can literally say to his disciples, which he says at the end of his life, right before he leaves, look, I want you to go into all the world and be my witnesses. And I'm going to be with you always. And he can say that and mean it in a literal sense. So the ascension, first of all, it means three things, at least. First of all, the ascension means that Jesus goes global. In Acts, verse 1 of this passage we read, Acts chapter 1, Luke says this, In my former book, Theophilus, and I tried to emphasize this when I read it the first time, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And most people who comment about this suggest that that word began is very, very intentional and takes on significance for Luke and is even highlighted. It is as if Luke is suggesting that the book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do. So, you know, we often get the impression that if you've read Luke and if you've read Acts, you think, well, Luke is the biography of Jesus and tells us all the Jesus stuff, and then Acts, that's the story of the apostles. In fact, that book is often called the Acts of the Apostles. This is what happened to the church. But Luke seems to be suggesting this is the stuff that Jesus did in my biography about Jesus. This is how he healed, and this is what he taught, and it was amazing, and this is how he freaked people out and amazed them. And then this book, this book is about what Jesus did through the church. What he continued to do, and what he's continuing to do today. Part of the globality of Jesus is through us. But that's only part. Part of the globality is because Jesus is now fully represented by the Holy Spirit in each of us. More about that in a moment. Secondly, the ascension means that Jesus is glorified. First of all, it means that Jesus goes global. Secondly, the ascension means that Jesus is glorified. All right, glorified is the fancy Bible word for made greater. The ascension means that Jesus goes to a whole nother level. There's a famous old English hymn writer named John Newton, and he's got a line in one of his famous hymns that says this, He's talking about Jesus, and he's the whole hymn about Jesus, who he is, and his names. And, and he says this, Jesus, my brother, shepherd, friend, my prophet, priest, and king. This prophet, priest, and king is how theologians over the centuries have organized and talked about the ministry of Jesus. He was a prophet, he was a priest, he was a king. And by prophet, of course, a prophet is someone who represents God to the people. He's a teacher. He both tells us about God and tells us about what's coming in God's world. 
And Jesus did that with more authority and power than anyone has before or since. And then he's a priest. And priest represents the people to God. Offering up sacrifices to God and making petitions to God on behalf of the people. And Jesus ultimately was the perfect sacrifice. And he did this better than anyone has or could or will can since. And then king. And a king, of course, is rulership. Someone who rules over. And we don't see this in Jesus' earthly ministry, but after the ascension, all of this takes on a brand new kind of meaning and whole new dimensions. And as a prophet now, his ministry has expanded and deepened so that Jesus speaks to us through one another. That means that Jesus now has access to Diane every time Diane and I are together because he can speak to Diane through me. But he also has access to John. Every time one of us are around John, he has ac- and he has access to Jesse because uh, Jesse lives with her mom and dad and Robbie, or just Robbie now. And every time they're together, Jesus has access to all of us. It's as if he's multiplied. Do the math. He has constant access to us when we're around one another, but more. He can also speak to us as prophet directly through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. He has invested, infused himself in us. And now he has access to us constantly as a prophet. And as a priest, whole nother level. He's now at the Father's right hand, the Bible tells us consistently, which is imagery explaining that he is right next to God, God the Father, explaining and expressing and declaring our needs to God the Father and praying for us and praying on our behalf. And finally, as king, I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul's description of Jesus' kingship. Stay with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19b and following. This is just Paul's brief description of Jesus' kingship. He says this, That power, he's talking about the power of God, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. All authority, all power placed in his hands and under his feet. Jesus is now king. So how is all of this possible? Well, thirdly, Jesus is not only gone global, he's not only glorified, but the ascension of Jesus means the release of the Holy Spirit, as we said. So in chapter 13 of John's biography, John describes this incident for us when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to have to leave them because by this point in his life, Jesus knows what's coming. And the disciples at that point were very distressed. So Jesus responded to their distress by teaching them about the Holy Spirit. And sometime I would commend John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16 for you to read. In essence, this is what Jesus was saying to them. Look, you're not losing me, but I'm going to be with you in a different way through my Spirit. This means we can't talk about the implications of the ascension. We can't understand the ascension without talking about the Trinity. So, we could spend weeks talking about the Trinity, but let's do this quickly. 
The Trinity is, of course, a confusing concept. None of us get it fully. It's why Muslims think we're heretics. But the best illustration I've ever heard of the Trinity I want to share with you this morning is from uh, the Christian author C.S. Lewis. So in an excellent illustration, C.S. Lewis asks us, stay with me, he asks us to imagine drawing a straight line on a piece of paper. This is a one-dimensional figure, Lewis tells us. Then imagine drawing a square. This would be a two-dimensional figure exhibiting width and depth. Lewis reminds us that while the second figure is completely different from the first, it nevertheless uses elements of the first figure. It uses straight lines to draw the square. That is, several straight lines are used to make one square. Then Lewis suggests that we imagine drawing a three-dimensional cube. The cube is actually the combination of six squares drawn together. He summarizes like this, and I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis. In other words, as you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind you the things you found on the simpler levels. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you could not imagine if you knew only the simpler level. Now, the Christian account of God involves just this same principle. The human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being. And any two persons are two separate beings. Just as in two dimensions, say on a flat piece of paper, one square is one figure and any two squares are two separate figures. But up there you find them combined in new ways which we, who do not live on that level, cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. How good is that? <laughs> Listen, the, the key to understanding God is not to get that. The key to understanding God, if you've missed everything else in your entire life, don't miss this. I mean that literally. The key to understanding, because I have the key. The key to understanding God is Jesus. Over time, his first disciples came to see this because of his extraordinary, fantastic teaching. Then they began to see extraordinary, fantastic actions and events that confirmed even more so that the key to understanding God was Jesus. Finally, they came to see that Jesus was key to understanding God because he was one being with God. He was part of the Godhead. The ascension was like a confirming exclamation point on that truth. A couple of weeks ago, in one of our messages, I said that God doesn't relate to us like someone on the third floor of an apartment relates to someone on a first floor apartment. It's not spatial. I said God relates to us the way J.K. Rowling relates to Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling has written an elaborate universe, and a universe full of, oh, I didn't read any of the books, what's the game that they play, the, just thank you, whatever that is, and witches and warlocks and bizarre people that all of you know about, sorry, um, but J.K. Rowling has created a universe that Harry Potter inhabits, but Harry Potter has no way of knowing J.K. Rowling unless she writes herself into the story. In Jesus, God wrote himself into the story. 
now in the Holy Spirit, God has taken up permanent residence in our story by taking up permanent residence in us. The ascension made Jesus global through us and through the Spirit. The ascension glorified Jesus. It took him to a whole nother level. And the ascension released the Holy Spirit. So, there are two reasons to be amazed at Jesus. Reason number one, he is amazing. I looked up on YouTube, some of you have seen this, but I looked up on YouTube yesterday actually. The TV special, that there are two of them, TV specials that David Blaine did. Some of you know David Blaine is a street magician. And it's pretty awesome. You know, he doesn't have a big giant stage with elaborate effects. David Blaine just, you know, make a big deal. Half of the TV special is David Blaine walking a city street just to let you know how cool and awesome he is. He just walks up to random people. Sometimes they're famous people. Like he went in, one of them, he went into the locker room of the Dallas Cowboys. He has an interaction with Leonardo DiCaprio. But usually he's just walking up to random, he even goes to other countries. But usually just walks up to random people and, can I show you something? And they're a little weirded out. Say, no, no, and he takes out a deck of cards and he does something unbelievable. And some of the stuff he does is, it's unbelievable. But what you need to see when you're looking at David Blaine, and one of the reasons the television special is so fascinating is the people's reactions. So he takes out this deck of cards at one point. Uh, pick a card, any card. person picks a card, and he says, okay, show it to the people behind you. And they show it. Show it to the camera. Show it. I don't want to see it. So put it back in the deck anywhere you want to. Flips the deck, puts it back in. And he's, you know, it's showmanship, and he's, Oh, does a wiggle and a dance or whatever it is he does. And then, is this your card? Well, no. Of course, we all know he hasn't failed. Oh, is this your card? No. And he says, well, I don't know what to do now. He takes the cards and throws them. There's a restaurant behind him. Just a city street. Throws the cards at the restaurant and says, I can't figure out where your card might be. And their card is on the other side of the window. Their card is on the inside the restaurant on the other side of the window. Here's the great thing about the David Blaine TV special. People's reaction is usually something like this. What? What? They go nuts. Look, this, this is stupid. That's stupid. Get away from me. They go crazy. Because what David Blaine does is pretty amazing. We believe that Jesus raised people from the dead. We believe he defied the laws of physics and walked on water. And at the end of his life, we believe he was disappeared in front of a group of eyewitnesses. And we don't believe there was a trick involved. That's amazing. And if you're not amazed, then you're too jaded or you're emotionally muted, or you're distant, or you don't believe, or something. You have a spiritual temperature if you're not amazed by what happened to Jesus and by what he did. Second reason you and I need to be amazed is because our hearts were designed to be amazed. We were designed for worship. We were built for wonder. 
And we operate at our highest and best capacity when we direct our amazement at the right things. And I was incredibly convicted in the middle of this week when I realized that I had wanted to not talk about the ascension because I thought it was boring. I thought this fantastic, amazing event in the life of Jesus was boring. You know why I thought it was boring, I think? I thought it was boring because I don't know exactly how it changes tomorrow for me. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Tomorrow, in my to-do list, does this make me feel better? Does this give me an emotional buzz? Does this tell me how to improve my parenting? Does this make me happier? Can I overcome anxiety? We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Awesome, Ed. That is where I live. Does this help my commute tomorrow? And unless it does, I'm not interested. But this is amazing. This may be our primary challenge spiritually. We live in an age and culture which sponsors the notion that we deserve to be, we should be, amazed at ourselves. So we end up devoting ourselves to whatever serves us. We even turn our religion into whatever serves us. This is why Jesus warned us that we can't worship God in money. As if he anticipated exactly what would concern modern American suburbanites. We were designed for worship, and we are worshiping the wrong things. So today, let's worship Jesus. Stand with me if you would. And let's begin our time by confessing our sin. You and I, I believe, need to start today by acknowledging why we're not more amazed. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, and we have not been amazed. We humbly ask that you would have mercy on us and forgive us for the sake of your Son, Jesus. And you would cleanse us from our sin. It's in his mighty name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's remain standing. Come, you sinners. Come, ye sinners. Or in needy, weak and wounded. Sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love and power.